You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. The focal passage this morning is going to be in Colossians, starting in 1, verse 24, and going to chapter 2, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible this morning to follow along with us, we'd love to give you one at the Connect desk. It will also be on the screens. So follow along as I read, starting in Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Lady Osea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children here can be dismissed to their classes. Oh, it was not on. (laughs) Come on, you're supposed to tell me these things, Patrick. Push the button. Push the button. Uh, Good morning. My name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Apparently, it's my first time doing this. So uh, thanks for being here. Um, If you would, just pray with me before we get started. Uh, God, thank you for uh, thank you for this morning. Um, thanks for the men and the women and the kids that you've gathered here today. They are yours. This morning is yours. This word is yours. The sermon is yours. The songs are yours. The prayers are yours. Um, and so we just want to entrust uh, what is about to happen here and what hap- has happened here this morning into your hands. I pray as we sang that you would set us free, um, maybe for the first time from sin. Uh, maybe for the first time from, from lies that we believe about ourselves, uh, and maybe there are some of us in here who, who need to be set free again or realize the freedom that they have, including myself, um, that we make the work that is already hard enough, the, the church work, the ministry work, life, the hardships that we all endure. Sometimes we make those things harder by making them about ourselves. And so this morning, God, maybe you want to set some of us free by, by reminding us that this life is not about us, that ministry is not about us, that the gospel is not about us, this, whatever's happening this morning is not about us. And so would you free us and free myself uh, to enjoy you uh, and, and walk in relief and rest and peace and endure what is hard because you are good and you're sweet and your burden is light. Um, so God, do your work in us and through us this morning. Uh, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, so almost 10 years ago, a young family moved into our neighborhood. They had a couple young kids uh, around the same age as some of our kids. And, um, and they didn't really like, seem to hang out with a ton of other people. And so whenever we saw them uh, walking around the block or 
around town or whatever, we would make a, an effort to like chat with them, make sure they weren't by themselves, you know, hang out with them uh, or whatever. And one night, our family was uh, just about to kind of wrap up dinner, and uh, we were having breakfast for dinner, we eggs and pancakes and bacon, and you know, like that's the best. That's the best kind of dinner to have. Uh, yeah, you know, Bailey, right? Um, so like we saw them walking past the house, and so we went outside, said hey, and just invited them to come inside. Hey, you're welcome to come in, hang out with us. We've got some pancakes or whatever, and so they come in, uh, the dad sits down at the table with us, and like mid-sentence, um, I, just, I remember it plain as day, he's talking about something, and as he's talking, he just reaches across the table and just takes the last piece of bacon from the plate and just like, just eats it, like it's just gone, the last piece of bacon. Like he didn't pause, he didn't breathe, I don't think, he like just ate it, and I didn't even get to say goodbye to that piece of bacon or whatever. I, I like bacon, all right? I make really good bacon. I've literally wrestled my 60-pound dog on the floor over a piece of bacon that fell off of the table before. That's not a joke. Uh, I was raised in a house where before you took the last thing, right, you would ask if anybody else wanted it. That just seems polite. And here was this guy, my brother in Christ, right, who, who walked into my house and sat down at my table and ate my last piece of bacon as if I didn't have any plans for it. And look, whatever was happening inside of me in that moment, uh, grief or despair or fury, whatever it is, what it revealed in me in that moment was that I was far more concerned about losing my last bite of one of my favorite foods than I was eager to let these folks who were probably hungry for some hospitality to come in and make themselves at home. Uh, It was really petty, but I was treasuring in that moment my taste buds more than I was the generosity of Jesus in the presence of his people. Like I vividly remember that story for a reason. And that sounds really stupid, and it was very stupid. But, but all of us, I think, myself included, we can talk a big game about Christian ideals and what it looks like to follow Jesus, what he calls us to, what we all ought to be willing to do to help a brother or a sister out. But in the nitty-gritty of life, it's stuff like someone taking the last piece of bacon that can reveal what our heart is actually more ready and willing to do and to fight for. And the gap between what's true in theory or in our theology, like up here in the clouds, and how we really live on the ground, that can be a bigger gap than we might care to admit, and it might be a bigger gap than we would actually care to stand in. And the impact of us not standing in that gap isn't just a a ding on our faithfulness, right? Like that we're hypocrites. It's that the gap stays a gap for the people who need that gap filled. For the person who's looking for help or community or belonging or just good news of grace. When the church refuses to tangibly fill out for others what our belief in Jesus is supposed to look like, like then the ideals might be there in our heads, but, but there is no invitation to come inside. There is no table to come in and, and sit at. There's no last piece of lovingly cooked bacon, right, to offer for them to enjoy. The opportunity to not just talk about grace, to invite, but to invite people to experience it, that passes us by. No, but like all of that stuff, when we refuse to do that, does that change who Jesus is or what he did for them? It doesn't change any of that stuff. Does it affect the truthfulness of our theology in some way? It doesn't. But does it, does it impact that person that we refuse to fill the gap in for, yes. 
it impacts them negatively. It doesn't change when or how or who encounters Jesus. It absolutely does. When the people who have been found by Christ and made full in Christ refuse to pour out the, the sometimes costly love of Christ, it doesn't change anything about Christ, but it does change how other people come to see or know or experience him. And the beautiful thing is that it actually goes both ways. In other words, the, the work of the church, it actually matters. And it, it can be hard in the smallest, stupidest little things, or in the case of Paul, like in big ways, like getting run out of town and having attempts made on your life. He's writing this letter while he is in prison, not just for believing things about Jesus, but for living like he believes things about Jesus. And that is costly, but it is worth it. And that's what we get to explore a little bit through uh, Paul's words today. That we, the church, get to do the hard work of bringing good news to real people. Pretty simple. Uh, we're going to take a look at the first few verses in our focal passage to get started. We're going to look at uh, verses 24 through 27 in chapter 1. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our first point this morning is this, that church work is hard work. So right off the bat, uh, let's deal with the weird thing, all right, that's in this passage. Paul says that in his own suffering, as a prisoner, he is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. That should throw some flags for you if you're paying attention to that. Uh, Jesus suffered for the church. On the cross, he took our guilt, he took our shame, he died under judgment for sin that wasn't his so that we don't have to die under judgment for sin that is ours. But what Paul's saying here is that something is missing from the suffering of Jesus. It's, it's not enough. <laughs> but not enough for what? There's uh, a reason that you guys heard about Guatemala last week, if you're here with us for that Global Go Sunday. Adam and Tammy and Kelly and Jose and Phil, uh, all the folks that spoke last week, um, have, have put boots on the ground in the little village of Los Chilitos, and they put up with stuff like extra vaccines and, and flying to an entirely different country and finding out they didn't have a, a room to stay in that night. Uh, hard labor, crazy heat, coming back home with like probably some stomach stuff or whatever. Uh, and they did all that on their own dime, right? And, and, and bodily expense. There's a, a reason that they put their bodies through all of that, and there's a reason why Jose wants to go back there, you know, again and stay even longer. I love that. Uh, dude, and it's because Jesus' body, Jesus himself, isn't physically in Guatemala. Jesus isn't hurting his back from moving boulders, right, or, or getting stomach bugs from drinking the water that's there. His dirty boots aren't the ones on the ground. His parched lips aren't the ones sharing the gospel. His, his lovingly cooked bacon is not the bacon that's up for grabs, right, on the table. If, if you remember if you were here with us in John, towards the end of John, uh, where is Jesus? He's on the throne. 
right? Human body and divine nature. He is in heaven. When he was down here, he got tired, right? He did get tired. He got thirsty. He did work hard all the way to the end, but his suffering now, it's over. His afflictions are finished, and they were enough to pay for our sin and to wash away our sin and to declare us righteous before God, all because of his hard work, his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus' hardships are the ones that we talk about every week in the gospel, but Jesus' hardships aren't what's going to take the gospel to every corner of the world. He closed the gap between us and God, but there is still a gap between those who know about it and those who don't. Jesus' suffering does not lack saving power. Jesus' suffering lacks physical arms and legs and mouths in your neighborhood that can deliver the news of that saving power. And that's where our feet come into play. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Isaiah writes that, and Paul quotes that in another letter. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion that your God reigns. That's Isaiah. And I promise you that that, that those beautiful feet that he talks about, climbing mountains in sandals or whatever it is that they wore to climb mountains back then, 2,500 years ago, those feet weren't pretty. They were probably dirty and blistered and sore because even though the news was good, the climb was hard. But why is it hard? Church work, which boiled down, is just us bringing the good news of Jesus to bear on our life and the lives of those around us. It's hard for three reasons that we can tease out a little bit here. And the first one is this. It's hard because we are picking up where Jesus left off. We're not finishing the good news of Jesus, all right? But, but we're finishing spreading the good news of Jesus that he started taking from town to town, that the kingdom of God had arrived, that Jesus is its king, that all are welcome, and local churches get to be its little outposts in a big world that is currently under a different ruler. That's our job, right? The ministry or the stewardship that God gave Paul and, and us to make his word fully known in Jesus, what God had been up to for ages and generations all through the Old Testament was this plan that God was going to save his people himself. And while we don't know, like we didn't know how all that was going to go down, his people weren't sure what that was going to look like, Jesus filled in all of the blanks and he revealed to everybody that he is our salvation. He is the good news. Jesus' work was to make that crystal clear by bringing that to bear in word and deed everywhere that he went. And that work got Jesus ridiculed. Rumors spread about him. He was misunderstood. Some people just wanted to use him for what he could do for them. Some people just wanted to argue with him all the time. He was tired. He wanted to be by himself at times. He was driven out of cities. People made false accusations against him. Friends didn't show up when he needed them. One friend betrayed him. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was executed. This was the earthly experience of Jesus as he tried to love the Lord and his neighbor and work to bring them the best news ever. That was a lot of Paul's experience. That's a lot of what the early church experienced. That's what many Christians around the world experience even today. So, so we can't expect our earthly experience doing the same work to be any different. 
if, if you've been around the village for a while, then you know that we don't preach a gospel that says, like, oh, Jesus, once you come to believe in him, he makes everything easy in your life. Everything is just fine and dandy. Now, Jesus will set all things right, but, but that's in the end, and, and it isn't the end yet. All right, but sometimes those expectations of a, a false gospel sometimes creep up in really subtle ways. Like, that if we're doing the Lord's work, then his blessing should look like, flattening out all of the wrinkles that are in front of us, right? If Jesus wants me to do this, then why is he making it so hard? I'm sure we've asked that at some point. I just want to do this thing. I want to grow in this way, but it seems like there's just like hurdle after hurdle to get through. Don't you want me to do this, Lord? As if he might not call us to do hard things. Or as if he might, he can't like grow us through the hard things or cause us to thrive in the midst of hard things. The riches of the glory of the gospel that Paul talks about here, it's not Christ making everything easy out there so you can bask in glory right here and now. He says that the riches are Christ in you now, his Holy Spirit dwelling in here while we work out there in the hope of a future glory for others. Church work is hard work because Jesus' work was hard and we're just picking up where he left off. The second reason that it's hard is because we're, we're carrying it with our bodies. This is a simple point, but it's worth saying that our job to make God's grace known is not theoretical. Our hope of glory is not an idea. It's not a theory or a theology or a paragraph or a creed. Our hope is a flesh and blood, living, breathing person named Jesus, who's fully God and fully human. He worked hard. He got his hands dirty. He bled. He talked to people. He went places. He made meals, and he shared meals. He argued, and he comforted, and he called out people. He cried, and he got tired, and he got thirsty, and was mad about stuff. He had friends and enemies. We have a hope of future glory for our bodies and for every bit of creation. Because Jesus, our hope, isn't disconnected from the physical world where things cost money and take time and they break and they die and they're inconvenient. Our hope is enmeshed with the tangible world because Jesus enmeshed himself in the tangible world. That's why we have a total hope for an entirely new world coming down the line, like not just a new heavens, but a new earth and a new body, which means that hope is for every part of our lives and every part of ourselves, not just in what we think or theorize about. It should show up in concrete, physical ways. Community, creating art, making coffee, being generous with money or bacon, Sharing meals, opening our homes, serving people, the work of the church show up in and through our bodies as our bodies are able. If you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in your whole person. Your whole person, not just your brain, but your body, what you do with it, where you take that brain, how you treat people, how you work. Even though your body is not entirely new yet, you are a new person and you have a new job to do with an old body and it's got limits right it gets tired it gets hungry it gets hangry all right it gets anxious about things it needs knee replacements or forget stuff it might get thrown in prison right like Paul and at some point it will die just like Jesus 
And all of that hard stuff might happen anyway. Some of that might only happen because we're doing the work of the church. But church work is hard work because the hope that Jesus brings hits the whole world, physical and spiritual, heaven and earth. And just like our bodies, the whole world is still, for now, the old world under the effects of sin and suffering and evil, which makes the work that we put our body and soul to hard. But when it gets hard, we get to resist the temptation to disconnect. Do not let ministry become impersonal or live in the hypothetical. It feels safe. It feels safe to retreat a bit, but hypothetical ministry isn't ministry. It is a good idea at best. We get to keep our hands in the dirt and remind ourselves that every difficult thing we touch is something Jesus came to redeem or to restore or to use. And that includes people, the people around us, which leads to the third thing we get to see here. Church work is hard work because we are bringing it to everyone. For those uh, not new to the gospel or Jesus, it is not a new idea that non-Jewish people can actually be part of, of God's family. That's an old hat. But to Paul and the people of the day, like Yahweh, the God of, of the Jews who delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt and who established the nation of Israel and all this other stuff back in the Old Testament, like it was wild that there was now this big explicit invitation from God to anyone anywhere who would repent and believe the gospel to join his family. Right? Paul says that God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, this mystery that Christ could be in them and the hope of glory could be theirs. That was a big deal. This was a huge surprise from Jesus and the early church and this caused a big stink. It caused a lot of confusion, lots of questions uh, about customs and traditions and what it looked like to embody tangibly like this faith. How Jewish did this Christian faith need to be? What, what should we be allowed to eat? What traditions or laws should we follow? What if we don't agree with, with these other people from these other backgrounds? Maybe they should just have their own little church over here and do their own little thing and we'll do our thing. Like, do we really want these kind of people in our church? It's a really good thing we don't think about those things today, right? <laughs> For being honest. Simply put, church work is hard work because Jesus doesn't discriminate, and we do. We categorize people. We assume stuff and ascribe value, like worthwhileness based on surface-level things. And it is super easy for us to play it off as personality differences, right? Like we just don't click, we don't have that much in common. Or to play like the God is sovereign card and be like, oh, someone else will come along, right? To, to quote uh, my favorite X-Men theologian, Charles Xavier from the movie Logan, someone else has come along. And to be clear, the work of the church isn't to be best friends with everybody. That is not the work of the church. Jesus himself only had a, a few of those, right? He had a handful of friends. But the work of the church is to be the body of Christ on earth, bearing and embodying Jesus, right? And, and the good news of Jesus in word and deed to all that God brings across our path, even if you'll never see him again. You and I both know that that's harder than we wish that it was, which is why I love the way that Paul describes the mystery of the gospel to the Colossians. He doesn't say that God wanted to show the Gentiles how great the riches of his glory were by saving other Gentiles. 
He said that he wanted to show the Gentiles how great the riches of his glory were by saving you, dear reader. That Christ is in you, the one hearing these words. Right? The staggering thing isn't that someone else has the hope of glory, but that you have been given the hope of glory. That's the surprising thing. That's the mystery for us. Jesus came here to work hard for you, and he built a church and sent it out to work hard for you, so that after 2,000 years of blood and sweat and tears, Christ could be in you, even in the midst of whatever hard stuff is going on or whatever hard work you are currently doing. Nobody saw that coming. You didn't see it coming before you met Jesus. You, when you were just being formed in the womb, you did not see that coming. That should blow our mind. Does that blow your mind? The church gets to do the hard work of bringing good news to real people. We are those real people. This leads to our second point. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses in Colossians 28 through 29. Paul says this, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The second point this morning is this, that church work is Jesus' work. Um, I've got, there's a letter up here. Some of you guys may get this, I'm not sure. Uh, it is a letter from Jane Armstrong, handwritten, photos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, some of you might know her. She is a legend of campus ministry uh, on campus at Miami up in Oxford. And we get a letter that she writes on a regular basis, just like updating us on what's going on, saying how she can, how we can be praying for her and for the students up there. She literally handwrites the whole thing, and it's, it's pages. Uh, it's the closest thing that I get to like a letter from Paul, right, to the Colossians uh, on a regular basis. And in the letter that we got just this past week, um, she talks about a guy named Dakota, who trusted in Jesus when they got together to chat at a McDonald's up in Oxford. And the, the crazy thing is how she met him. Jane met him when she hit him with her car while he was crossing the street on College Avenue. <laughs> she thought the road was clear, so she like took the turn. She saw a flash of yellow and heard something. And that something was a human being named Dakota. Uh, and so he was okay. She got out of the car and made sure that she, that, that he was all right and like gave him a ride to where he was going. And while he was in the car, uh, the car that she hit him with, um, she asks if he knows Jesus. Can you, ima- can you imagine? Sorry for the vehicular assault. Uh, can I talk to you about my Lord and Savior? That's pretty wild. And he didn't know who Jesus was. They chatted, they exchanged info. And sure enough, like fast forward a bit. And he is trusting Jesus at McDonald's because the person who hit him with her car wanted to talk about Jesus again. Like, now we generally don't want to be the ones who are causing the suffering that we then get to minister to people to, like with the gospel. But hey, when we do, that's what we get to do. But listen, like, I I can't imagine a better excuse for not wanting to share the gospel with somebody than the fact that I just ran them over. And I can't imagine a better excuse for not listening to someone talk to you about Jesus when they just ran you over, right? But look, the kingdom of God yet gained a saint. Because in that moment, in that situation, Jesus went to work in both of them and relieved both of them of the burden of making that situation about them or the other person or what just happened. The only reason that you'd feel the freedom to bring up Jesus after something like that is because you were either wildly not self-aware Right? And just disconnected from reality. Or you are so dialed into what the gospel is and what it isn't. And what ministry is 
and what it isn't. That you no longer let your blunders or your sins or other people's determine whether or not you are qualified to talk about Jesus in that moment. Or on the flip side, like whether someone else can talk to you about Jesus in that moment. Some of the folks that we do discriminate against are folks sitting in prison or who used to be sitting in prison. Some of those folks are here in this room right now. Like, like we're sitting under the words, though. I hope you realize this. We're sitting under the words of a guy who hunted and bound and murdered Christians. Paul's words are the words of an inmate. Praise Jesus. Right? Praise Jesus that while the work of bringing good news to real people is hard, that the good news we're bringing is not about what we just did or our work or the hope of, the hope of our work bearing fruit is not about our work. It is all Jesus' work. It all points to him. Our work is sometimes hard, but it is a relief that is always about Jesus. And so we'll look how that's true in three ways. The first is this, that it's about Jesus because he is the message. It's him we proclaim, Paul says, not yourself, not you. Like if you've ruined your witness, quote unquote, ruined your witness, guess what? You get to witness to the grace and power of Jesus by freely confessing whatever it is that you did to whoever you did it to and letting community come around you and surround you and repenting and receiving forgiveness and living as if your identity really is in Christ, not in whatever reputation you've made for yourself, whatever mess you've made. You don't have to punish yourself or hide from the world because the message isn't about you or me. We get to offer the hope of Jesus on our absolute worst days just as much, sometimes maybe even more than on our best days because that message, it never stops being for us first. Can you imagine hitting someone with your car and the inner dialogue that begins to happen inside of you. Guilt, embarrassment, fear. Like, did that person get, are they hurt, right? Who else just saw what I did, right? Like, all of that stuff. And to come out the other side of that inner dialogue with nothing but utter concern for the other person and a desire for them to know Christ in them and share the hope of glory that you've got. Knowing Jane, like, that is the message of Jesus in her. That was part of the inner dialogue, telling her to throw off the guilt and throw off the shame and to live out of the freedom and hope that she has and that he has for our man, Dakota. Jesus is the message. The second thing is this. Church work is, is also Jesus' work because he's the measure. We want folks to mature in him. That's what Paul says. And it's as simple as this, that if you want people to, to become like Jesus, you have to give them Jesus, right? Like, like you have to show them his life and his nature and his character. Show them his words. Remind them who he is and what he did. Encourage them to pray right to him and to study his words. Consider his warnings and his teachings. Like Paul says, let folks wrestle with what he might say about where they're at right now. Give them room to flounder. And give them room to ask questions and maybe arrive at a slightly different conclusion than you sometimes. Don't just spoon feed answers or point people to the internet. Not that those things are bad all the time, but, but the Christian maturity that we are striving for is more than just self-help and decision trees, right? Making the right decision. If this, then that. It's not a bunch of lines drawn in the sand that you can't cross or that you can get as close to as you want to so long as you don't actually cross them. Discipleship isn't the process of learning where the lines are. It's the process of becoming like Jesus. 
It's not just Christian stuff on the outside. It is Christ in you. That's living in light of the glory of hope. And that does mean living inside some lines. Theologically, what we believe, how we live, morality, all that stuff. But because you know the person who drew the lines, not because you memorized where the lines are at. Those are two very different things. And the relief here is that you don't have to figure out someone's life for them, right? We can't figure out our life for ourselves most of the time, right? You, you don't have to be someone else's standard, and your standard isn't anybody else except Jesus. Not your pastor, not me, not your buddy who knows a lot about the Bible, right? Jane Armstrong is not your standard, but gosh, if we were like her, right? Love to say that, but she's not our standard. And it especially not your standard is the hypothetical version of yourself that doesn't exist, may never exist in the future, right? Because your standard is Jesus. And even though he is the standard higher than any other standard that you could possibly pick, he is also your substitute for all of your sins and all your screw-ups so that you have all the room in the world to grow without giving up one inch of your certainty of salvation. So keep your eyes on him and surround yourself with people like Jane, honestly, who is far more interested in helping you be mature in Christ himself than the lines in the sand. The last thing is this, that, that our work is about Jesus because he's the means. We toil and struggle, not with our own strength, but with the energy that Jesus is powerfully working within us. And that might sound like some wonky New Age stuff. I don't know what that sounds like to you. Uh, but, but it's scripture. Like Jesus goes to work by working his power in us to get stuff done. The Holy Spirit is living He's alive. He is active in you. Jesus is reigning, and the Father has a plan, and everything is going according to that plan right now, even if you think it's not. You are not lacking anything that you need in order to do what Jesus wants you to do today. I don't know who or what might tell you otherwise, but nothing, not you, not your sin, not Satan, sickness, situations, whatever, can cut you off from the life that Jesus is pouring into you and wants to pour out of you today. It might not meet your expectations. <laughs> like It might not look like what you had planned for the day, right? But what Jesus is working on and what we are working on sometimes aren't the same thing. But they can be the same thing. They can be, even though it's not always rainbows and unicorns. Just because Jesus is the one working doesn't mean that the work won't be hard. Paul doesn't say he's got smooth sailing with all of Jesus' energy. He says from prison that he is struggling. And, and his toil is to help the church mature. For this I toil. Two things, right, that can help us know what it feels like maybe when Jesus is the one at work in us. One, it actually might feel like a struggle. It might actually be hard. And two, it'll probably be for the good of the church. Other brothers and sisters in Christ. Hard work to bring good news to real people. Which makes sense since that's what Jesus worked and is working for. And once again, that, that energy does not come from something other than Jesus. Like, I, I don't know what motivates you spiritually. Like, what kicks you in the pants to, to do church work for Jesus. Maybe you make planes, you have a whiteboard, you have stuff you say, things you wrote on the mirror. Maybe you have a playlist that gets you pumped up for the day or whatever, whatever it is. Like, but I do know that there is nothing outside of you 
more motivating than the fact that your future is glory, that the church's future is glory, that your work to build Jesus' church, it is not a question mark at the end of some list, right? And that you are not a question mark at the end of some list. Jesus has proclaimed to you from the outside in that you are his and his work will get done. And there is nothing on the inside of you that is more internally motivating. No, no skill or theology or mantra or whatever more powerful than the Holy Spirit and you who is awake and following Jesus' orders from the throne to help you see the future in front of you, the hope of, of glory and to struggle in the present knowing who you are and who it is that's at work because Christ is making every bit of hard work for his church worth it. And this leads to our last little section this morning, the last uh, five verses, Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Paul closes out today with this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I'm going to put a pin in that. We're coming back to that the next two weeks. We're going to talk more about that. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good work or your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. A third point this morning is this, that church work is good work. It's good. Our first week in Colossians, Paul said that the gospel was bearing fruit around the whole world. Like wherever it goes, it's taking root and it's making moves, just like it, it has been in Guatemala, just like here in Hamilton, just like it was in Colossae. But that fruit, that saving power of Jesus that changes lives and changes cities when it's carried by the beautiful feet of the church doesn't come without a cost. Paul gave up a lot of stuff, a lot of status. He put his body and his reputation in harm's way, knowing, knowing that going around and talking about uh, Jesus and how he's God and he's Savior and he's, he's King was going to tick off kings who think that they're God, right? And rabbis and local business owners and families and the ways of life of lots of people, and it did. It ticked a lot of people off, and he is in prison to prove it. But there's also a church in Colossae and in Rome and in Ephesus and in Philippi and in Galatia and in Corinth all over to prove that it was worth it. The news of Jesus' suffering and the news of the end of Jesus' suffering in his resurrection, like the victory that he has over sin and death and his enemies was making the rounds and making a difference. It's hard work, but it's good work. It's work that we get to, as Paul says, we get to rejoice in it. One of the last things that I want anyone to hear from, from this section, this sermon, this passage, is that your call to ministry, which we all have, is a call to be a victim. That is not the call, right? That in order for you to be doing anything worthwhile for the kingdom, that you have to be suffering in some crazy, significant way. Many of us in this room have been victims of many things, and the church gets to be a place where we get to, to talk about those things, grieve and lament and bring some healing to that stuff, but none of us are victims of God's call on our life, even if the work that he might call us to do is hard, and it might cost us. On the flip side, 
God's call automatically gives us victory over all of the awful things that have happened, all the awful things that could happen to us, all the sin and all the suffering and all the evil, because both grace and justice will have the final say in Christ in the end. Our suffering will one day end, just like Jesus' suffering has ended. The hope of glory won't be a hope. It'll simply be what living is. That's what the glory will be. And work might still be hard, but it's not going to be because we're working against the, the powers of darkness. But all this talk of suffering and affliction and, and hard work, that can make us think that blood and sweat and tears, serving a, a bunch of hours, giving away a bunch of money, being available to anybody and everybody 24-7, that that is somehow like the marks of someone working hard for Jesus. When in reality, like those can be the marks of a fool. That stuff might be fueled by good intentions, right? But it, it might not be wisdom. It's not the understanding that comes from Christ that lets us live as if the church hinges on us or our work or our energy or our power. The hard work of the church might require sacrifice. It does require some sacrifice, but it's not fueled by people who want notches on their belt or scars on their face. It's fueled by people who are eager to see other people encouraged by the gospel, finding their assurance in Christ, who are blown away by all the cool things to be curious about and captivated by as God's word is made fully known. All the riches and treasures of his knowledge and understanding the mysteries of his grace made a little more clear so that the whole church might stand together arm in arm following Jesus in good order and with a firm faith. Paul does not rejoice in his sufferings like we, or doesn't rejoice in his sufferings like we read in our first point this morning because he he really likes to suffer. He's not rejoicing in his sufferings because he loves pain. He's not a masochist, right? He is suffering because things are bad. Suffering is bad. Suffering will come to an end. Suffering doesn't make it into the new creation. Paul rejoices in suffering for the church's sake because he is suffering for something. And in these last five verses, he hasn't even seen the faces of most of the people that he's writing to. He's not even with them physically, but in spirit, he's already rejoicing because the hard work of others, not him, but others, Epaphras and the other people who were there at Colossae and in Laodicea, they have boots on the ground and, and that work has proven to be worthwhile. It is bearing fruit. He is excited about that. Paul doesn't love putting himself in harm's way. He loves people. Real people. Some he knows, some he hasn't met yet. And that has cost him. And he, he gladly paid the price, not for the sake of having scars, like he's proving himself, but filling the gap for the sake of the people that he does care about, the church, proving to them that the riches of the gospel really are worth that much more. You and I aren't called to put ourselves in harm's way. We are called to put the gospel in other people's way for their good, just like when it was put in our way, which is probably why most of us are here this morning. And that might cost us a bite of food. It might cost us swallowing our pride when our, our first impression might literally be a wreck. And it might mean a lot of things. But the cost is not the point hear that. The cost is not the point. The gain is. It's not about losing the last piece of bacon. It's about giving grace. It's about pointing to God's grace. The good of the good news is the point of all of this stuff. 
right? We have the privilege of seeing it bear fruit in real people in our lives if we are eager and willing and ready to stand in the gap. There will be much to rejoice over. And so Paul's words here kind of leave us with a few things for us to consider between us and the Lord. Ben, you guys can come on up if you would like. Um, these are actually our reflection questions for this morning as well. I just want to invite you to consider these things as we close out today and move into our response time. Uh, first is this, like, are you more eager to see people encouraged in Christ than you are worried about what it might cost? The gospel frees us, like Paul, to be more concerned with other people's encouragement, right, than our inconvenience. We get to we get to count the cost of discipleship. That is a real thing. We get to be wise. We're not called to be foolish, but we are called to make and mature disciples. Is bringing good news to real people, is that a worthy investment? Two, how is your struggle in the flesh? How is that for the sake of others showing up in real people's lives today? Is that happening, right? We get to evaluate that, not just to see if we're doing it, right, or not doing it, but, but are we doing that in the Lord's strength, right? Is his power working in us? Would you even know what that looks like if it's your power or the Lord's at work in you? What's that look like? Number three, how are you struggling in spirit for folks that you may not be with? or that you don't know right now, when there's not something or somebody that you have to like deal with right in front of you, are your heart and mind still swept up in praying for folks and asking for uh, the Lord to help you be mindful of what he's doing around you, that you might step into that in some way to prepare your heart. Maybe you need to be convicted, right? Repentance, maybe you need the comfort of the gospel in some way that will prepare you then to offer Jesus to the people around you, some good work he's planned for you to do today. And lastly, is the mystery that Christ is in you and that your hope is a hope of glory. Does that blow your mind? Is that the best thing you've heard all morning? Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, is it surprising still in the best way? Before you even consider, like all this other stuff, all the other questions, you get to consider for yourself the good news that Jesus has for you. He is the message for you. He is your measure and your room to grow, and he is the means by which he will grow you into glory. And so with that, I want to invite you guys to respond to Jesus. Respond to whatever the Spirit might be stirring in you this morning. There are questions up on the screen. You can think about those, pray with the Lord, wrestle with Jesus in that stuff. Uh, if you are a believer this morning, you're welcome to come up here and partake in communion. Uh, the, the little bread up here is a symbol of Christ's body that was broken for you. The cup of juice is a, is a symbol of the blood that Christ shed for you, both of which he shed body right, and soul so that you might have peace with him. You might have a hope of glory. And so you get to sit reflect, see where God might want to stir in you uh, repentance or comfort in good news and come up here rejoicing in the work that God has done. If you're not a believer this morning, you're not a Christian, uh, then this is not for you, but we are for you and Jesus is for you. Would love to chat with you back there against that wall. There'll be some people who uh, will pray with you back at that red tree. If you want prayer, we would love to talk with you. I would love to come up and take communion with you for the first time if you believe today, all right? And all of you can stay and sit and pray in your seats or you can stand and sing with the band. So just take a few minutes, consider what the Lord would have you do today, and respond accordingly.